This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed beyond words to be in dialogue with Dr. Katerina Lagos. We will be discussing her newly published book, The Fourth of August Regime and Greek Jewry, 1936 to 1941, published in Cham, Switzerland by Palgrave Macmillan, 2023. Dr. Lagos is Professor of History at California State University, Sacramento. She is also Director of the Hellenic Studies Program in the Department of History at California State University, Sacramento. Katerina, it is my privilege to be in dialogue with you today. Likewise. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your scholarly journey to this to this day? So I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. My parents left Greece in 1967, September of 1967, um, which coincided with the first months of a military dictatorship, the junta dictatorship of 1967 to 1974. They were very lucky that they had their paperwork approved to leave Greece and come to the United States. So my very existence, because I was born after my family had left Greece, was very much predicated on big historical events. So I was born and raised in Seattle. Uh, My parents had a restaurant. I worked there and it was right next to the University of Washington. So growing up and working in the restaurant, I had access and waited on professors, faculty, uh, administrators, and to listen to them. And so growing up, I of course applied to the University of Washington and went there as an undergraduate and uh, received two degrees, history and political science, but there was one faculty member and Peter Sugar, who wrote Southeastern Europe under Ottoman rule. And I was fascinated with his classes, especially when he talked about Greece. I'd always sit in the front row to listen about Greece. And uh, he asked me what I wanted to do as a career. And I told him that I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought this is a good path. My parents tell me I'm argumentative. So maybe this is going to work for me in the future. And he turned to me and he said, young lady, you would be a horrible lawyer, but a good professor. So with that comment and um, some other events, I I decided to 
pursue a graduate degree. I wrote my senior thesis on personal accounts of the overthrow of democracy in Greece in 1967. And so this is where the stories of how people viewed the junta dictatorship, and then it led to my, my family's story. So that began the process. And so uh, I went to NYU, studied under Spiros Burionis, uh, Alex Kutrov was there. And then I finished up my degree at St. Anthony's College at Oxford uh, under uh, the guidance and supervision of Richard Clogg. And that was a fantastic opportunity to, to meet other scholars that you see their names on books, but to meet with them and to talk to them about your research was truly a, an incredible experience for me. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? So the idea for this book actually comes from my doctoral thesis. And the doctoral thesis goes back to NYU when I took a graduate seminar on comparative fascism. And then we talked about Italy, we talked about Spain. Very little, if anything, was mentioned about Greece. It was always a side note, something, oh, he must have been fascist, or very little depth or interest in pursuing the topic. And I said, well, why, why has no one really written about this area? And I found it fascinating. And so I took it on. And of all the topics that were presented, like you should think about as supervisors, they say, you know, you have to narrow your focus and take this or that. And I said, my family is from Evia. My parents are both from the Kimi. And on the island of Evia is Chalkida, one of the oldest communities that have continuously resided in the country since antiquity. Why do I not know very much about that? I go to Chalkida every summer. Why do I not know about this community? And so that was the impetus for me to write about it. And it has been something I have really enjoyed learning about. What are the primary themes in your book? What story and stories does your book tell? So some of the stories are deal with anti-Semitism, understanding the situation of Greece prior to World War II, because there's this assumption that because Greece had such a high proportion of lives lost during the Holocaust, they make this determination that there must be something going on in the pre-war years that directly lead to this number, to this statistics. So one of the themes or one of the arguments that I make is that, no, actually this is not the case, that it is far more complicated. And it leads to an understanding of domestic affairs and what Metaxas wanted to do. And this is based on this paradigm of inclusion and exclusion that I speak about a lot in the book. What does Greek identity mean? Who is included in this? And specifically for Metaxas, how does this, who's included in his view of the third Greek civilization? What assumptions about Ioannis Metaxas does your book challenge? Why do they exist and persist? <laughs> I think we could spend a whole hour talking about this. Uh, let me just take a couple. Uh, first off, um, most people know the Metaxas dictatorship because of its connection to World War II. He is the leader who rejected the Italian ultimatum on October 28, 1940, and brought Greece into World War II. 
today there are still people who make the comment, well, he never said no. He didn't utter that word, that the people said no, various interpretations, well, what did this no stand for? Why are we supporting this type of regime? So he's commemorated, there's conflicts in his very commemoration. When he turned to Grazi and said, alors c'est la guerre, it was very conclusive that the meaning of alors c'est la guerre was a rejection. Um, it was Vradini, that newspaper that had the headline of Ohi, and that was picked up. People chanting in the streets, Ohi. So it, that is one aspect of his regime that people are still grappling with and misconceptions. Uh, secondly, a big misconception that I find is his connection to a post-war dictatorship, the 67 to 74 dictatorship that I mentioned early on, because people see these colonels as some sort of post-war sibling of the Metaxas dictatorship. Both are argued being equally fascist. So you have this understanding of the Junta dictatorship as being fascist, then reapplied back to Metaxas as being fascist, equally to be dismissed, disregarded, and condemned. And they're very distinct. They're, they're, they're completely different animals. The Metaxas regime was a police state, during the period of fascism, interwar conflict, getting ready for World War II, while the military dictatorship of 67 and 74 was in the context of the Cold War, Cold War politics. It was a military state. So they're very different, but the only connection is that these colonels were educated during the period of the dictatorship, of the Metaxas dictatorship, espouse some of these ideas, fatherland, homeland, Christianity, that connected them, ergo, they must be one and the same. And th that's a popular myth. I, I really actively try to it dis disabuse people. So those are just two of many for the Metaxas dictatorship. Can you describe the causes and consequences of the Greco-Italian War of 1940 and 1941? Can you describe Metaxas's role in the conflict and his handling of the conflict? So Metaxas was very consistent in his political agenda and outlook. So his whole goal while he was in power, and it was only four years, uh, was to keep Greece out of an impending European-wide conflict. He knew what was coming. As he wanted for World War I to stay out, so too he wanted to stay out of World War II. And he actively tried to calm situations. And August 15, 1940, uh, the Greek cruiser Ellie was sunk by the Italians. This was a deliberate provocation by the Italians to, Greece, to bring Greece into war. And Metaxas did everything in his power to uh, calm, resolve the situation, including lying to the press. Everyone understood that this was an attempt to bring Greece into war. Metaxas lied, said, no, not the situation. We're working with Italy. And with the rejection of the ultimatum, he has a press He has a meeting with all the press and he acknowledges that he lied. And he said, I did this because I see the situation for Greece is dire. If we enter war that he saw 
not only, of course, the death and destruction, but potential dismemberment of the country. And he tells them that he had no choice. He felt compelled to say no. And he was compelled to say no to go to war. And he, and this is where some of the misperception about Grace and who said the no comes about. He had made it clear to Grazzi and other Italian uh, leaders that in no way, shape, or form was Greece going to ally itself, ally itself with the Axis. Number two, they would go to war over this issue. They would not accept being invaded, uh, provoked. They would fight against them. So he tells the press that this was his policy up until this point. He tried to avoid going to war. Had he accepted being accepted the ultimatum and allowed Italy to come in, Greece would be dismembered more than just two, but in three constituent parts, three Greeces. And he harkens back to the national schism of Greece being divided into two factions. He said, here, we would be divided into three. And so for as much as Metaxas was one to promote neutrality, avoiding conflicts, he said, this was a time that Greece needed to step up and say no. And he, he mentioned something that has really struck with me is that we had to say no, not because we would win the war, but because it was the right thing to do. It was the honor of the Greek people. And this speaks to Metaxas as a person. He was very committed to that. And the other kind of side note is listening to the radio broadcast that Metaxas gives the next day to the Greek people. And to be honest with you, I listened to it a couple of times and listened to it from different stations because he, he was very deliberate. He was very clear in his speech. He's not one of those emotional speakers. If you hear Adolf Hitler, the rise in his tone, the quiet, the loudness, he, he's, very, he's very careful in how he constructs his speaking. Metaxas is very different and had a, a much more youthful voice than I would imagine for somebody who is approaching 70, dies when he's 70 years old in 1941, January 29th, but very kind of laid out, very precise, very deliberate, very thoughtful in how he does this. So for Metaxas going into World War II, this was never a spur of the moment. It had been building up. He knew what was there. And being a superlative strategist, and especially going back to his military um, studies in Berlin, he knew what was waiting for Greece. He was very much a pragmatist. So for the war, getting back <laughs> to your question, um, this was a big turning point for the Greeks. And it is one of those unique periods where Metaxas genuinely had the support of the Greek people. And it is fascinating and ironic, and I tell this to my students because much of the equipment, Metaxas reorganized the Greek military and used many Axis armaments that were given in trade relations with Germany. And you can read about that in Mogens Pelt, um, his works. Um, he used this, he was able to unify the people against the Italians, unify, bring the military, which was more politically homogenous at that time, against the Italians, and they were able to push back the Italians well into Albania. So this is a victory for Metaxas, 
his final months as he is slowly losing <laughs> his life. Um, and for the people, because it also for the military itself, this really hits a chord with the military because their last experience on the battlefield is the Asia Minor campaign and the defeat, the catastrophe as we all know it. And so for them, this kind of helps erase the trauma, the defeat, the humiliation of 22. So this was a major turning point and this success, and it, it was unfortunately not a success that's going to last very long as Germany had postponed Operation Barbarossa to deal with the situation and to invade Greece using Operation Marita, April 6, 1941. So it, it's, it's a unifying one for Metaxas. It was one to give some sort of inspiration to the Greek people, and you, you could see the film footage at the time showing a little bit, get a glimpse insight into the peop, in, into the Greeks who were able to push back this large fascist power. There are many people you think in your acknowledgments. Would you like to express gratitude to anyone publicly? Uh, there are so many, so many college colleagues, and I'm very blessed, truly, to have them in my life and to engage with me. And um, of course, Ioana Foka Metaxa, she's the granddaughter of Metaxas. And so when I began my research, I immediately, she was the first person I approached. And her mother, Nana Foka, Metaxas's daughter, was still alive. And I was able to interview her. So Ioana Foka opened up her door to me. And she was also very, she was instrumental in helping me, put me in contact with individuals whom I could interview. So I owe her a great debt. Um, gratitude. Andrew Apostolou uh, is another one. And I met him in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs archives where we we're sitting side by side doing research, only to discover that chronologically, his research began where mine ended. So that began a friendship. And lastly, another colleague whom I, I, I just adore, Otho Nanastasakis at Oxford. And his dissertation, his thesis was partly on the Metaxas dictatorship. He did education comparing the military dictatorship of 67 to 74 to that of the Metaxas dictatorship. So he was also instrumental in this book. But as for someone who is no longer around, who I think of so fondly, and I have him in my introduction, is Elias Hadzopoulos. And he was someone, a survivor, and uh, he has a hotel, his now his children, grandchildren have a hotel in Athens. And he gave me multiple interviews and I would go and visit him. And he was so charming and spoke to me. He put me in contact with Moises Kosandinis, who was the head of the Athens Jewish community, the late Moises. And uh, I think of him fondly because I, he gave me so much information and I was like busy trying to take notes. At the end, when he asked about me and I said, yes, you know, Greek American and I do know how to Greek dance. I even taught Greek dancing. He asked me to teach him a few steps of Greek dancing. And he said, I want to surprise my wife and my friends. And I said, not a problem. So at the hotel, after we finished our interviews, uh, I would give him a few dance lessons 
and teach him a few special movements so he can impress his friends and family. And uh, he was very much, he looked after me. It, it, it felt very close and um, I cannot forget him. So this book, I, I put him in the acknowledgements because he was so formative for me. Why is the history and legacy of Ioannis Metaxas relevant in the year 2023? What can it teach Greeks and non-Greeks? What can it teach Europeans and Israelis? What can it teach to students, scholars, and specialists who are unfamiliar with modern Greek history? That's a wonderful question. So it's still relevant today because of the celebration on October 28th every year, Ohide. So his name always comes up and it's become a national day of pride in resisting a larger Axis power. And so the Greeks always like to talk about, well, we were the first defeat of the Axis, so they take this pride. Um, he's important not only for that. I think it's important to do research on Metaxas because people have these very kind of um, broad stroke understanding of his regime. To what extent is it fascist? To what extent is it not? To what is extent, why were so many, so many Jews of Greece, Greek Jews, why were, why did so, why did such a large percentage of them perish in the Holocaust? What was going on during that period? Anti-Semitism and fascism, all these different layers. So understanding Metaxas is basically peeling an onion and finding out there's no cookie cutter explanation for this regime that, and fortunately or unfortunately, as you want to take it, it really contradicts many perceptions that people have. So I think Metaxas is a very useful uh, scholarly area of study to understand anti-Semitism in Greece at the time, the interwar period leading to Greece, to World War II, and how is commemoration understood? Because people like the commemoration, a good portion of the population does not like Metaxas's link to that commemoration. They like to sanitize it. And this is why sometimes you hear of people saying, oh, it wasn't Metaxas who said no, he was forced to say no, the people said no. So they're still trying to grapple with this link of Metaxas as this semi-fascist dictator together with this commemoration of Greek heroism. Can you elaborate on Ioannis Metaxas's vision of a third Hellenic civilization? <laughs> um, yes. And it is this idealized vision of a society. And it was very vague. He really was not, he didn't give much details. We know, based on the few things he said about it, that it was to incorporate the genius, the brilliance of ancient Greece, intellectually, intellectually, together with the religiosity of Byzantium. These two were to be combined and form a new civilization. So this actually tells us a lot about him as a regime because he had no intentions of territorial expansion. He's echoing very much the period of the interwar years in Greece in the sense of introspection following the Asia Minor catastrophe, introspection, looking inward to society, 
identity, all sorts of issues were, were occurring during this period. And for Metaxas, he saw how can Greece reachieve a period of stature, of honor, of brilliance, and he thought it was in the realm of intellect. So it's cultural brilliance, cultural resurrection. And that is what he had laid out. So he was in power for four years and he left it in terms of vague generalities, something he never really clearly articulated, gave a timeline and what it really meant. The only aspect that we do have based on this conception is that we piece together who is part of it and so the definition would be basically the language coming from the intellect, linguistic ability in Greek, and religious devotion, which was Orthodox Christianity. Therefore, it raises question marks. Will those who are Greek can have lived there who are not Greek Orthodox? What does that mean for them? Can you describe the Thessaloniki fire of 1917? What transpired? How were Greek Jews impacted? This is a watershed moment in multiple ways. It was a watershed moment for the Sephardim, the Jewish community of Thessaloniki, that had been so revered and so a cosmopolitan community, various Jewish groups within, and had a beautiful life. Um, this fire destroyed much of it. What the problem with this fire is, it came during the period of World War II. Um, fires in August happen frequently. Uh, this is in the historical accounts. And uh, because you have the Vardar winds, you have a lack of water, uh, you have fires emerging and the construction of homes were not as fire resistant. So legend has it, that it was a woman frying eggplant, caught fire. This is one of the accounts of it. The origins of the fire took over and wiped out most of the Jewish residential neighborhoods. Uh, compounding this, because it was during World War One, General Sarai of the French like allied military station in Thessaloniki gave no assistance, none. So this area gets wiped out. Why is it significant? It is a watershed moment because it is not rebuilt in the mat. It is not reconstructed to rebuild and recreate what had existed in prior years. This is the pattern in the 19th century. For Venizelos, it offered, and the Greek government, successive interwar Greek governments, it offered them an opportunity to recreate the city along Hellenic lines. So in the post-war period, so after World War I, you're gonna recreate it. And for, for Venizelos, Europeanize it, modernize it. For the Greeks, to erase an Ottoman past. For many living in Thessaloniki that had animosity towards the Jews, it was a way to change the dominance of the city from a Jewish one to a Greek Christian one. So it offered multiple opportunities for multiple agendas at that time. So Thessaloniki is recreated, European lines. And those who lived in the cities had a purchase or were sent to the outskirts, 
So it basically erased the Jewish presence, the dynamism, the cosmopolitan nature of a wonderful community that had existed for hundreds of years, basically redone, eliminated. And the Jews were not the only ones because the Ottoman presence was also eliminated as well. Mosques, other attributes from the Ottoman uh, presence were also erased. So this was the reconstruction. So the fire of 1917 is one of the formative uh, events for Greece, but most importantly, for the Jewish communities that live there. Many emigrated because of this. So it's a very important one. So people who look at urban design, because this is, Thessaloniki is the culmination of other urban redesigns that had happened in Southern Greece, so Central Greece and beyond, reconstruction one and modernized. But Thessaloniki had the advantage of serving multiple agendas. And uh, especially with the tensions that were going on, the anti-Semitic hostilities in Thessaloniki, it was an opportunity to kind of rectify demographic um, uh, numbers and prominence for that city. Who was Adamantios Korais? Can you tell us about him? Adamantios Korais is um, an intellect who lived in France, saw the French Revolution, uh, was formative for the Greek language and Greek historiography in the sense that when there was a discussion about language in Greece, what would be the, the Greek language, there were debates about what is spoken and through the centuries of you know, education, how it's spoken, mistakes as it continued on versus that of in having ancient Greek. Korais attempted to be someone who promoted compromise and to purify the Greek language. And he comes up with katharevusa, which is purified Greek. And he has neologisms like politismo, something he creates. So for those who are linguistic scholars, they, they, they discuss this of, this is not just a purification, but he's actively creating. So trying to be this compromise or a proponent of compromise for Korais, eventually over the course of the 19th century, early 20th century, he became, or Katarevusa, became another polemic, a pole in a very fractious, divisive, and at times violent uh, debate about language in Greece. The Katarevusa of Korais, who becomes the, basically the literary language, the educated language, and the demotic, the spoken Greek. And by the turn of the 20th century, this takes on such incredible dimensions. You've got on the one hand, Queen Olga, who tries to purify, who wants to use um, demotic Greek for the Bible, and you have the gospel riot, absolute violence. Then you have demotic in the interwar period being layered on with political overtones. Those who speak demotic are communist um, sympathizers. And so, the hairy communist, demotic. So, Korais inadvertently, without ever having any intention, creates a new linguistic polarity in Greece, something he never intended and probably would have <laughs> never done. So, he thought he was compromising. He wanted to move language forward, very much the intellect, very much went to other theorists. Um, 
who talked about language as reflecting the ethos and the morality of people. So he wanted to revive kind of a renaissance in the Greek morality and using language as a vehicle for that. But I, it had unintended consequences as the century progressed. Who was Konstantinos Paparigopoulos? Can you tell us about him? Paparigopoulos is a fascinating Konstantinos uh, professor, University of Athens. And he becomes interesting in the mid 19th century because in the earlier period, uh, first decade after Greek War of Independence, we have a German scholar, J.P. Falmerier, who decides to do an investigation of the Greeks and um, their composition and their origins and makes the argument that the Greeks, present day Greeks or then contemporary Greeks really do not have a strong enough link to the ancient Greeks to call them descendants. So challenged national identity, Greekness, and this lit a storm in Greece. So Paparigopoulos was tapped to issue a response, and he did, over seven volumes, to show with mathematical and scientific precision for the then time, how the Greeks of antiquity were actually linked to the contemporary Greeks. So he was a rebuttal of this challenge to Greek identity. And it had secondary kind of effect, this whole debate about Greek identity, what it means to be Greek. First in the construction of Greek identity, and this is why Greeks, very few if any, very few, I'll put it that way, had biological arguments for Greek identity. How do we define Greekness? It's a biological explanation. They would avoid that. Secondly, for the for Greek leaders, it created the sense of defensive nationalism. And my former advisor, Peter Sugar, wrote about this defensive nationalism in protecting. So it had this hyper defensiveness. And for nationalism, you could read Haris Milonas, expert on this area, talks on and on about that. So uh, Paparigopoulos was used, was employed by the Greek government or volunteered by the Greek government to rebut this challenge to Greek identity. And so very thorough and set off triggers and reverberations on how the Greek state, how Greek society constructed and understood Greek identity after that. Can you tell us about <laughs> Athanasios Papayugenou? Yes. Why is he noteworthy? Athanasios Papayevgenio actually was a fascinating character for the Metaxas dictatorship because he, he was the individual in charge of foreign and minority schools in Greece. And um, he actually wanted to be a priest in looking at his background a little bit. And he gives this speech um, when he comes into prominence and he's tapped um, during the Metaxas dictatorship to oversee the curriculum, the personnel, what is going on in the foreign and minority schools. And education was a hot button issue for Greece for various reasons. One is to get a handle of how many of them existed. Number two, concerns of religious proselytism. Number three, concerns about political um, indoctrination. So Papa Evgenia would write the reports and here oftentimes you see the commentary, personal sentiments. But to see what is going on in the foreign and minority schools, he is the one who really pushed 
the directives and the policies for Greek language competency among teachers and students in the foreign and minority schools. This was an issue that we see comes into conflict, say with the Alliance Israelite schools and other Jewish schools, especially um, became an issue for Zionists because to maintain Jewish linguistic, cultural integrity was critical. And they saw this law of Greek language uh, competency, who's gonna be teaching about Greek history, appropriate levels of knowledge of, of the Greek past as encroaching and undermining Jewish identity. So he becomes the very center of this type of policy and agenda for the interwar years and is actually afterwards. So he's a very fascinating individual. What were the causes and consequences of the Godi revolt of 1909? The Wudi revolt, in my mind, I think uh, represents the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. It was a revolt by the Greek military uh, for various reasons. Uh, the, most, uh, the most initial is uh, the political incompetency or the political weaknesses of the government. And it came up with allowing when Crete, the island of Crete, which was not yet part of the Greek state, asking for unification and Nazis and subsequent uh, prime ministers in Athens were unable, unwilling to accept this unification. And the military is going to revolt, revolt on the corruption in Athens and also for the issues within the military need to have reform. And they're speaking to the defeat of the Greek military following the 1897 war with the Ottoman Empire, the Greco-Turkish War of 1897. Huge defeat, very big humiliation for the Greeks. So they had multiple reasons for the coup and the overthrow. What is interesting about it is that yet again, as the military had done before, they had no interest in taking over power for themselves. Who do they bring in? They promote Eleftherios Venizelos, who comes from Crete, takes on political power, and it is he who kind of, to me, represents the beginning of the 20th century. So the old political conflicts are basically wiped away, and new conflicts, new polarizations. So Venizelos was pivotal in political visions, economic visions, modernization, as opposed to pre-existing forms of socioeconomic development culturally. So with the we see a new chapter in Greek history evolving. And also it begins the period of Greek expansion through the Balkan Wars and World War One. But Venizelos was the person who nearly realized what many called the Megali idea, the great idea, the territorial expansion of Greece. So Wudi is very important, both for the military that Venizelos did give in to their demands for reorganization, rearmament, um, to get something, and then also to take Greece through to the 20th century. Can you tell us about King Constantine I? Why is he significant to the history of what transpired in this period? Yeah. So King Constantine was involved in the Greco-Turkish War, and uh, the military uh, was not thrilled with the outcome. And one of the lists of their demands in the revolt 
was that uh, they be in charge of the military and not members of the royal family. So Constantine was already part of the debates and some of the issues going on behind the scenes. And so he comes into power um, following his father's assassination in the spring of 1913 in Thessaloniki, he was assassinated. And so Constantine comes in and with him and Venizelos, there were already some tensions between the two. So they did well for the Balkan Wars. And you see images of Constantine on the battlefront, you see him on the table talking to his advisors, but he's in, significant because of World War I and Greece's entry into World War I. And this is where we had a constitutional crisis. Constantine sympathetic to Germany. His wife was the Kaiser's sister, getting pressure from her or maintaining neutrality because he felt that the Germans, the central powers, were had a stronger percentage of maybe winning. Venizelos had the popular mandate. And his campaign was to enter World War I on the side of the Entente powers. So it, this was a constitutional crisis. And Constantine, together with Venizelos, led into one of the most bitter divisions in Greek society, the national schism, that lasted well into World War II, Venizelos and the royalists. And it is a complete rendering. It's not just political sympathies. It affected people in their daily lives. It was that powerful. And if you think, if one thinks about it, in the diaspora, people who went to church, believe it or not, went to Venizelist Greek Orthodox churches or Royalist Greek Orthodox churches. Even the newspapers, the National Herald, the Atlantic, divided based on the national schism. So Constantine and his position vis-a-vis Entry, Greece's entry into World War I was beyond that of military participation, but one that significantly divided the country. Stathis Kalivas talks about this as well. And Mavrokordatos, George Mavrokordatos. Can you describe the biography of Ioannis Metaxas? Where did he grow up? What is known about his family and his upbringing? What were the most impactful events in his personal life and his political career? So Ioannis Metaxas, born in Cephalonia, um, comes from a semi-aristocratic family, uh, not especially wealthy, uh, but he's absolutely gifted. Part of the royalist circles, which is no, no surprise, and because of his uh, academic or intellectual acumen, he's given a scholarship to go study after he finishes his military studies to go to Germany. Um, and there he excels. And most people will know he's given the popular um, uh, label of Der Kleine Molke, the junior of von Molke. And he was known as a brilliant strategist. He studied the Gallipoli campaign, Dardanelles campaign from World War I. And because he studied it so much, he was the leading advisor to Constantine to say that Greece not assist France and Britain for this campaign. He said it was going to be a graveyard. And Constantine listened to him. So he goes, he studies, comes back. But success was pivotal for the Balkan Wars. And 
the capture of Thessaloniki. Joaquim Joaquim wrote a book on Metaxas, the formative years, and he talks about it and it was absolutely beautifully written. It was something I strongly recommend others to read. And he was excellent. After this comes back, Asia Minor for me is a big point because with Constantine abdicating because of pressure from German, from Britain and France, he goes to Corsica and um, Corsica, Sardinia, Corsica. And he's there in exile and Metaxas is there in exile. And once Constantine comes back in the fall of 1920, after Wunadi's defeats, Venizelo's surprise election, Constantine decides to greenlight the Asia Minor campaign. Metaxas refuses. And he said, I will not lead this. It is flawed. And the generals who are sent, Exodactylos and others who are sent to try to negotiate with him, have him come, said, we can force you to come. And Metaxas said, you can force me to come, but not to lead. I will serve as a soldier, but I will not lead this. He resigns his commission in 1920. So after the Asia Minor catastrophe, the trial of the six, eventually Metaxas, because he's like accused um, uh, in absentia, eventually things kind of calm down, comes back to Grace forms a free thinkers party and gets involved in politics. What we know about him, he's not charismatic at all. And when I interviewed people who were, um, who were part of Aeon, the youth movement of the Metaxas regime, I go, what was Metaxas like when you, when you talked to him? Were you inspired by him? Was he, in a, you know, what was he like? They, nobody ever said he was charismatic. He was very pragmatic. He kept to himself in his memoirs. He talks about being very isolated. He's, he's, he, didn't, he was not a very social individual. He was not a very outgoing individual. He very much kept to himself. His best friend was his wife, Lela his best friend. So he wrote to her constantly. His achievements, his tribulations, all of that he wrote to her. So he was one who was not that dynamic. But what I can tell you about his personality is that he's very methodical. He thinks things through. He's very consistent in his beliefs. And this is where I come back to Asia Minor because <clears throat> While may, many people call him devoted to the royal family, a royalist, it was to a point. If he disagreed, he would stand on his principles. This is why he did not come back to serve Constantine. He cried. A tear was shed when Constantine had to leave the country. So, and this was the second time after the defeat Asia Minor. Tear for Constantine. So this is somebody who did adore the royal uh, Constantine and the royal family, but would stand on his principles for that. So he he was that. He because of the lack of popularity in politics, he had this very jaundiced view of parliamentary politics in Greece, the clientelism, the corruption. And um, I think he was the one who said with rotten fruit you can't make jam. So he had a very negative perception of it. So when he comes to power, he was not selected by King George in uh, the spring of 1936 because of he's the most dynamic, he will lead the country forward, but rather through a series of events, including that of, of the death of six of the most prominent uh, politicians, 35, 36, you lose these individuals. 
And because of his loyalty, he was not willing, he was not dynamic and charismatic to turn George into a Victor Emmanuel as George saw in Italy. So Mithaxas was one who was principled. He was one who foresaw what would be happening. He understood conflict was on the horizon and um, he was devoted to that. Why was the government of Ioannis Metaxas known as the 4th of August regime? It is because uh, the night of the 3rd going into the 4th of August, uh, Metaxas had already gotten acceptance by King George to form a dictatorship. So he had to persuade George. And so he got this permission. And using an impending national strike that was scheduled for August 5th, 1936, Metaxas bring, has an emergency meeting in Parliament. Everybody comes in, guards outside of the Parliament doors. Most of the parliamentarians are thinking that he's going to discuss this national strike and how to deal with it. Instead, he announces the establishment of a dictatorship. Since it came in the morning of August 4th, it has come to be known as the 4th of August regime. How did the First and Second Balkan Wars impact Greece and Greek Jews? Okay. So the Balkan Wars uh, basically lead to incredible territorial um, enlargement for the country. It nearly doubles in size and gets a massive population in northern Greece. Cities that the Greeks had always considered to be Hellenic and wanting to incorporate. You had Iwanina, you had Thessaloniki, and others. And in this northern population, you had many minorities. And in Thessaloniki itself, you had kind of like the jewel in the crown for the cities. And it was dominated by the Sephardim, who had been there for centuries. So for Thessaloniki and the, the Jewish communities, they looked at incorporation into the, into the Greek state with some trepidation, meaning that as part of the Ottoman Empire, they were a cosmopolitan city, outward facing, trade, exchange, and their inclusion into the Greek state would lead the Saloniki to be sub, would be on a secondary level as a port to Athens and Piraeus specifically, and that it would be more inward looking. So the cosmopolitan nature of the city would get shifted into more of membership in a nation state and secondary to the capital. So their economic links, their social links could potentially be broken and downgraded. So there was a lot of discussion after Balkan Wars and during World War I too, what is the fate of Thessaloniki? Should be internationalized as Austria, Hungary had proposed? And Venizelos goes on this big campaign to persuade the Jewish community, like, we look forward to your incorporation into, into the state, and we, we would like this. Yet, when the fire decimates the city, to what extent did he, did he acknowledge or honor the pre-existing patterns of neighborhoods and the Jewish presence? He did not. And finally, so long as... Um, he was able to court the Jewish vote, but later on, what does Venizelos do? He creates a separate electoral college for the Jews in Thessaloniki because perhaps they would be voting royalist. So 
the incorporation of the northern lands was a boon for a benefit for the Greek state. Those who lived there had sometimes conflicting emotions for their incorporation. Iwanana, we see the same thing as well during the Balkan Wars. So um, their incorporation and Greece will employ demographic alterations, especially with the refugees from Asia Minor, to make sure that it's more Hellenic dominated. Can you describe the Asia Minor catastrophe in 1922? What were the consequences for the Jews of Greece? So the Asia Minor catastrophe comes at the end of the campaign, and this was the um, campaign to take over territories in the western part of the Turkish peninsula, especially Smyrna, fulfilling the vision of the Megali Idea. And you see a lot of propaganda information or posters showing Megali Idea and Venizelos's portrait on the side. So this was an attempt to enlarge the Greek state. The campaign, the final part, is taken over by Constantine, Wunaris is prime minister, and it's a defeat. Metaxas foresaw it was a defeat, and the routing of the Greek military, the burning of Zmirna, it was so traumatic that memories of it is not the Asia Minor catastrophe, it's just simply the catastrophe. You have about 1.4 million Greek refugees, or sorry, 1.25 Greek refugees, I'll take a more conservative figure, coming into Greece, about 300,000 or so uh, Turks or Muslims, as they would call them, back then minorities were uh, labeled based on their religious affiliation, going back to what is going to be a newly created Turkey. And these refugees basically were discriminated by the Greeks in Greece. They were not as Greek. All these epithets uh, deriding them were used. They were in camps outside of Athens and Thessaloniki, some on the Acropolis itself. And for the Jews, the Asia Minor refugees, despite being discriminated, persecuted, uprooted, many of them would end up being part of an anti-Semitic organization, the Three Epsilon. And we see a lot of conflict in Thessaloniki. Many of the Asia Minor refugees who want to establish some sort of business set up a little like kiosks in front of Jewish businesses. So there was a lot of economic antagonism. And then because they themselves were discriminated, all of a sudden we start to see a rise in anti-Semitic tension, which is gonna culminate in my mind with the Campbell program of 1931, saying these Sephardim don't speak Greek. They're not Greek Christians. They're not Greek, they shouldn't. We are Greek Christians. We were persecuted. We should be given a you know better status. So it led to significant tensions in Thessaloniki, and it became a tinderbox for a lot of violence. Can you say more about the Megali idea? What did it postulate and stipulate? Can you describe its origins? What influence did it have on Greek society and politics? So the Megali idea is the territorial expansion of the Greek state, basically born at the same time Greece was born, because Greece was such a small state in terms of territory that there was basically a foreign policy to enlarge it to incorporate what Greek leaders thought were Greek individuals. And they already had three national assemblies trying to figure out what does it mean to be Greek? <laughs> that was a, a challenge. 
So um, Ioannis Goletis in, 19, in 1844 are basically is the first one to really articulate the Megali idea and to incorporate the European lands that were basically part of the Byzantine Empire. So, um, so it was Crete, it was Northern Greece, Istanbul, so these areas, so the enlargement of the Greek state. So we have a very aggressive Greek state at the same time with the Ottoman Empire that would be losing territory to the Greeks. So it's a very aggressive uh, state that is formed. And this foreign policy of territorial expansion always came at the expense of the Ottoman Empire. So of course, it would lead to tensions and uh, multiple conflicts throughout the 19th and early 20th century. So is this territorial expansion and the Greeks were able to incorporate much of the land during the Balkan Wars and World War One. How much is known of Ioannis Metaxas's relations with minorities in Greece other than the Jews? Can you describe his policies and attitudes? Very little is written about this. I think this is one area where there's uh, much to be researched. Um, the forbidden language by Tasos Kostopoulos. He talks about the the Slavo-Macedonian, as he calls it, the language, and the absolute repression of it. Um, and he, he, he discusses metaxas in it. So I think that much more needs to be written about it. I think Vasos Kostopoulos has been opened the path. Um, and I, I hope that others really deal with it because very little, most of the attention, and that's one of the problems when dealing with metaxas and Batikiotis, he had written about the regime and he passed away after the first draft of his manuscript and it's popular autocracy in Greece, I believe. I think that's the name of his book. Uh, he talks about how very little has been written about Metaxas. And he says, we have a plethora of his diaries, his memoirs, all these papers, all these archives. Why is so little time and effort spent on this man? So everything that is written about him is usually about foreign policy or World War II. The second group of, of scholarship has to do with his political orientation. To what extent is he a fascist or not? Very little has been written about his domestic policies. And I think people are trying to catch up at this point. We've got works on Aeon, and that's been wonderful. And so it's there's a beginning, uh, women in the regime, um, much has been done. So, well, not much has been done, but progress has been made in this area. I think that's more correct. So there is so much more that can be written on this period. And I really hope that attention can be turned to his domestic policies, his initiatives there, as opposed to just simply going back to the already known World War II international relations and, and degrees of fascistness. Of his regime. Can you tell us about the history of Greek Jewry during the interwar years? Um, so this comes during the period of what I think, I think this is my personal opinion of kind of introspection. We see this in Greek literature, this introspection, what does it mean to be Greek? Kind of trying to process and digest the catastrophe, this influx of refugees having this large minority population, which didn't exist to such an extent um, before the Balkan Wars. So how do you deal with this population? And also, and I forgot to mention this, is that you have a population of Greeks who may not speak very well Greek or have 
you know, not as knowledge. So there was this kind of campaign to Hellenize. So Hellenization policies for the interwar period. And for the Romagnol Jews who were linguistically assimilated, this was not such a, a big pressing issue. But for the Sephardim in Northern Greece, uh, it was a bigger issue. For the Zionists, it was a bigger issue. For the Alliance Israelite schools, this was a bigger issue because they see that the Hellenization meant cultural assimilation, not just integration, but assimilation. So they could see what was happening. And I think it was Moises Kofinaz who recounted for um, Lanana about how the local Jewish community school was going to shut down because so many Jewish students were going to go to the Greek community schools and how this was a success potentially by the Greek state in its assimilation, its, its Hellenization. So in Thessaloniki, we start to see a little bit more pushback uh, on this issue. The Zionists with their, with their goals, which was, I think, a critical issue that came up during the Greek War of Independence, Jewish loyalty to Greek interests. And that is something that was kind of underneath and kind of part of this hostility and this perception of the Jews as the other, because they don't ally or ally themselves with Greek national and political interests. So the interwar years is about this campaign to assimilate. And we see some of the tensions that spill over especially in Thessaloniki, and we'll explain why there's so much, just not just because the population is so large, but so much attention is paid to the city and its history. What was the national schism in Greek politics during the interwar years? Can you elaborate upon it? I, I think I cover that, um, this okay. division, yeah. Can you say more about the National Youth Organization of Greece, the EON? What was yeah. its historical significance? So EON is Ethniki Organos y Neoleas. It is the youth movement that Metaxas created. And it had distinct overtones to the Italian and Nazi youth movements. The uniforms, the salutes, the kind of uh, agenda in trying to uh, indoctrinate the youth. So much of that is understood in the context of Metaxas's fascist leanings. Um, it, it was a way to bring the children together to try to inculcate ideas of patriotism to them. Um, whether or not, I've heard some argue that this is a way to kind of uh, build bridges in the national schism to bring the children together, uh, to kind of mend some of these fences, to unify the youth as they will be leading Greece forward and did Metaxas really understand that war was coming and needed to use this as a vehicle for that. He also never had a political party that came into power with him so this was the next generation for him hopefully to be sympathetic to his regime. Yeah. Um, but for the Jewish community it's an interesting paradox because he talks about Aeon as a Christian organization. So people understand it as such. Yet Metaxas actually mentions very clearly that if those who are not Christian, and he goes with all their heart, 
wish to join, we will not be an obstacle for these individuals to become members of Aon. And so in doing my research, I saw that there were Jewish participants, members of Aon. And those were predominantly in the southern part of Greece, the old Greece, so outside of Thessaloniki. Most of the, many of them were Romanyot Jews, but they were members. But what this tells me, because I had a case study of an individual who was a member of Aeon, I think in Athens, but then was not allowed to participate in Aeon activities in Thessaloniki. So why is this going on? And it leads me to understand the kind of localized interpretations of Metaxas's directives and their implementation. So we cannot talk about consistency everywhere, a lot resided in the local chapters and what they decided to do. So Aeon was a fascinating um, case study for a this new third Greek civilization, all these participants, all these children were to be members of it. And so where do the Jews fit in in this? If Metaxas opens the door for them to be members, how is this gonna carry out? So I found that fascinating. And then I do bring up in my book, the case of uh, Mordecai Frizis from, from Halkida, whose children, because he died on the battlefield in the Greco-Italian War, his children become members of Aeon, but not regular members. They're honorary members. So yet again, kind of, they're members, but it's a qualified membership, this honorary membership. So the youth movement, I think, and the studies have been done, and it'd be great to see even more in this area. How has Ioannis Metaxas been remembered in contemporary Greek collective memory and historiography? Yeah, so yet, yet again, talking about fascism and his link to Ohi. So that is how he's remembered. And also the, the link to the junta as well. And um, the one thing I will say about that is it's fascinating in researching the junta leaders. And Dimitri Sandonio, Eleni Kuki, I, they published a really fascinating article um, because they, they kind of shed light on the fact that George Papadopoulos, one of the leaders of the junta, there were so many claims of links to Metaxas, but because of this perception of fascism, we see that the junta deliberately break that link and disassociate themselves with Metaxas. So there was a proposed Metaxas statue that was supposed to be created, erected, and they didn't. And rather they linked themselves to Venizelos because, and then attribute their the dictatorship, the junta dictatorship as a revolution, carrying out the revolution. And we hear this, this, this kind of wording throughout this language that's being used to, to kind of identify the military dictatorship. So he's, he's remembered in different ways and oftentimes conflicted ways. What does your book teach us about the history of anti-Semitism in Greece? That is a great question uh, because most of the time people understand anti-Semitism along very much Western European foundations. And in doing my research, I saw many differences uh, between the West and what I call the East, as in Greece as part of the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire. And these were the generators for the type of hatred and hostility towards the Jews that emerged. So people oftentimes will say blood libel or um, just the standard tropes, anti-Semitic tropes that exist in the West. But in the East, 
they, re they don't exist in the same way. Jews were able to own property. Christians lent money in the Ottoman, in the, in the Byzantine empire. So we have these differences and they have reverberations on anti-Semitic expression for the Greek Christians in the autumn from Byzantium onwards. What I argue in my book is that anti-Semitism in Greece up until the Greek War of Independence is religious anti-Semitism. Hatred of, their, of the Jews for their perceived um, participation in the crucifixion of Christ. And in Greece during Holy Week, there are a lot of uh, Judas effigy burnings that occur. And it's something that the Greek state, today you would even see this, and there are attempts to stop it. So religious anti-Semitism was the foundation for the hatred. And when I interviewed um, uh, the survivors, oftentimes they talk about how Greek Christian would take their children and scare them so they wouldn't uh, play with Jewish children by saying, oh, they're going to take you and put a barrel, put you in a barrel full of needles to take your blood to use for matzah. So there were all these religious type of stereotypes and aggressions that formed the foundation. So in my research, what I noticed is that the Greek War of Independence became this kind of another watershed moment or singular moment for a new form of anti-Semitism that is going to evolve side by side in addition to religious anti-Semitism, and that is political anti-Semitism. For the Jews who are perceived as not supporting Greek interests, who do not want to culturally assimilate and would be disloyal to the Greeks. So this begins during the Greek War of Independence as the Greeks are getting their freedom from and independence from the Ottoman Empire. And they would see the Jews as come with us as getting independence, but this doesn't occur. So we have the massacre at Tripolitsa. We have other massacres, Greek Christians massacring Jewish inhabitants because of their perceived alliance with the Ottoman Turks. But this was not a uniform picture because there were many Jews who supported the Greek War of Independence, including the Jewish community in, in Chalkida from my island of Evia. So it's a very conflictive understanding, but the narrative that emerged following the Greek War of Independence is disloyal Jews. And so Hellenism and Judaism or Hellenic people Jewish people are not one. And there's kind of like this tension because they will not support each other. And so throughout the, 20, the 19th century, as the Greek state expands, every time there's a violent conflict, we're gonna have violence exacted on the Jews. And so we see this throughout. And then that is why it culminates in World War II. That's why we almost have these separate narratives. The Jewish narrative of World War II, the Greek Christian narrative of World War II, and I should say the Greek Jewish narrative and the Greek Christian narrative. And oftentimes they don't interlap. They don't come together. This is a singular fabric that needs to be discussed. But unfortunately, they're two separate ones. And the, the political anti-Semitism that dominates, and many people have written about it. Rena Molko has written about it. Tobias Blumel has written about it. Many, many, many others have written about it. I mean, really influence even the way we shape our historiographies, our understandings of this period. So this is very different than what we see in the West and needs to be taken as such. So a cookie cutter understanding of anti-Semitism cannot be applied to the Greek case. And I think the complexity of it helps us understand anti-Semitism even more in its multifaceted type of expression.
What do you consider your book's contribution to Holocaust studies and to the history of the Holocaust? Um, it's understanding authoritarian regimes. Where does anti-Semitism fit in these? Um, also understanding that high death rates in a country does not mean that the pre-war regime was anti-Semitic with an agenda. Um, also, this is, a, this is a challenging point, so I, it's, it's controversial what I'm going to say, so I'll, I'll just put that out there, that under Venizelos, who is an elected, democratically elected individual, he had the Saloniki Jews in a separate electoral college to mitigate their vote, allowed the Tria Epsilon to exist. Macedonia published very virulent anti-Semitic articles, and it was under him that we had the reconstruction of Thessaloniki. Under Metaxas, absolutely Metaxas continued the appropriation of what was the Jewish cemetery for the University of Thessaloniki and used the cemetery as a negotiating point for uh, educational policies. Yet Metaxas, because of his, not that he deliberately set out to do this, but because of his agenda of press censorship, had the benefit of curtailing Macedonia's anti-Semitism, disbanding other organizations, except for those established by Metaxas, including when he did the youth movement, Boy Scouts were eliminated. So too was the Tria Epsilon. So for Metaxas, it's a very kind of complex, I don't want to make this very simplistic black and white, it's a very complex situation. So for those who are living, the Jewish individuals in Greece, because of the nature of his regime and his goals, it was a period where they didn't suffer the same violence that they did in 31. They did feel a period of safety. Now I will end with this. In doing my interviews with individuals, oftentimes they would conflate Metaxas, the Campbell pogrom, and deportation. So even in their mind, it's hard to disentangle that potentially Metaxas might have offered protection and or assistance and they say he was part of the problem. And then the final thing is that, well, Metaxas was not an anti-Semite. And I even looked at his library to see what types of books was he reading? Because oftentimes that tells you a person's interest. And there were very few books that dealt with anti-Semitism. And there are a couple which I suspect he didn't read because the pages were still glued at the top, they weren't cut. So there was no way for him to actually read the pages one by one. Um, that other members of his regime were anti-Semitic. So once Metaxas was gone, their personal interests, their personal grievances and hatred could be unleashed. And we saw that come out during the collaboration. So while Metaxas passed away, Members of, regime, members of his regime continued on during the collaborationist years and their anti-Semitism was open with no, nothing to apologize about. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? So since completing this book, um, I have been working on another edited volume and this goes back to the Greek War of Independence. And I'm currently writing a chapter 
for the Jews of the Greek War of Independence, because this is where a lot of the problems come in Greek anti-Semitism. And I haven't had an opportunity to really talk about that. And the differences was Western anti-Semitism, Western European anti-Semitism, because there are distinct differences. And I argue that the Greek War of Independence is a watershed moment because the Greeks are asking for political liberation from the Ottoman Empire. They are a minority. The Jews are a minority. So for situations where the Greeks say, you are our fellow minorities, you are minorities like us, why are you not fighting against the Ottomans? So a new basis of relationship between the Greek Christians and the Jews emerges during the War of Independence. And that is the perception of the Jews as allies of the Ottomans, allies of the Turks, and against Greek national interests. And this is going to carry on all the way through the 20th century. These questions of Jewish patriotism constantly come up. And we see violence erupting every time there's territorial expansion that is based on warfare. If it's peaceable incorporation, there's not as much tension. If there is warfare to get it, then there is absolutely it breaks out. So um, I'm working on that chapter. And I hope in the future to write a book on just the interwar period in general. I've written bits and pieces elsewhere. And I like to take it on as a larger monograph in the future. I find this an incredibly um, fascinating, complex period echoes of it, legacies of it we see today being discussed in the political realm, I think it I think it might be a valuable contribution to the field. I wish you the very best. This work sounds so important. I wish you the very best of luck in these upcoming emphases of your research. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you about it. Thank you. And as we end today, I just wanted to convey my sincere thankfulness to you for being such a saintly person so as to prepare such a marvelous book and such an angelic person to talk to during the course of today's dialogue yeah. Yeah. i get very enthusiastic um i get very engaged in my topic and i love this topic when i heard the testimonies whether on the show of foundation um or through USC, hearing people's voices, hearing their lives connected me in a way that was very powerful. And I will, I do want to make one point is that uh, Rika Benvenista came up with a book called Luna. And uh, I, I will be absolutely assigning it. My students love it, love when I lecture and when I bring these personal stories to people. And I think Luna's fabulous uh, because it is not just a history of the trauma and the violence that occurred to people but for luna it is the before her life before and her life after so you get the entire picture and so for me looking at this hearing the testimonies hearing about people's lives talking to them was i i am the better off for it so i'm the privileged one for having the opportunity to hear these stories and, and then putting them down on paper. I'm so lucky that I've had this time with you today. I feel so blessed and so enriched by all the gleanings you so generously shared. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. You've been an amazing host. Thank you.
As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Katerina Lagos. She is professor of history at California State University, Sacramento. She is also the director of the Hellenic Studies program in the Department of History at California State University, Sacramento. We have been discussing her newly published book, The Fourth of August Regime and Greek Jewry, 1936-1941, published in Ham, Switzerland by Palgrave Macmillan, 2023. Thank you from the depths of my heart.